All right, good morning. If you'll take your Bibles and meet me in 1 John chapter 3, we're going to look at one verse together this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you a quick update on the results of the Christmas extravaganza. Um, we ended up, uh, the, the tally's still not final. There's still some money uh, matriculating in right now, but... Um, Last week, when we made the decision of where we were going to be, how we were going to begin to allocate funds, uh, there was a little over fifty-three hundred dollars uh, that had been raised total, and so we, uh, the admin team, decided that we would go ahead and release about five thousand of that fifty-three hundred, which it'll probably go up another couple of hundred dollars when it's all said and done. So we'll probably end up somewhere fifty six, fifty seven, maybe $5,800. Um, but we went ahead and released $5,000. Uh, we found two families in our community uh, at large that um, were in the process of adopting and needing to raise, one family needing to raise about $8,500 and, an, and another family still with about 20000 left to raise. It just blows your mind, right, that it costs that much to take a child who needs a home into your home and make them your own. But that's, that's something else we won't, uh, you know, I won't jump on that, that soapbox this morning. So we were able to distribute to each one of those families $1,750. Absolutely. We were also able to support our local um, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, we have several uh, full-time FCA staff that serve East Alabama from Cherokee County all the way down into Coosa County, uh, Clay County, Talladega County, Cleburne, Etowah, St. Clair. And so we were able to uh, support those uh, four full-time FCA staff with a gift of uh, $400 and, I mean, excuse me, $500. And then the remaining $1,000 of the five, uh, we decided that we've got a pretty good... Uh, situation here at Eureka with David and our student ministry, and so we wanted them to know that we love and support them, and so $1,000 is staying right here to support our own students in our own church, and like I said, there's still some monies remaining, and if we find needs that those monies can go to between uh, now and the end of the year, then we will allocate those money to any needs uh, that might arise. So again, so that's how that $5,000 that we were able to raise through the extravaganza have been allocated. And if we are able to distribute any, any more monies, we'll let you know. But just want to say thanks again to all of you that uh, labored in whatever way it was that you labored. And there was a lot of different ways that you could participate. And uh, we're grateful uh, for all of you and all of your work and help. And uh, it just continues to grow and get bigger and better every year. And that's our goal is to continue uh, to make the Christmas extravaganza bigger and better every year. Uh, because to me, the bigger and the better it gets, then the opportunity that we have to raise more funds, which allows us to help more people uh, within our community uh, who are need, in need of help in, uh, in various ways. So, uh, so there you go. Hopefully we'll be able to maybe add some more to that as the days go forward, but that's where we stand right now. So hopefully you found yourself to 1 John chapter 3. Just one verse this morning. Uh, last week I preached a sermon 
on Joseph. Uh, as, I, as I said, a, a sermon that I had never preached now in what will be next year, beginning 30 years of preaching. And so what I've decided to do these next uh, today and then the following two weeks leading up to Christmas is uh, it, when I was going back to try to figure out if I'd ever preached on Joseph, uh, I figured out that I've uh, preached somewhere between 50 and 60 ser- uh, sermons on Christmas, different sermons. And it was kind of a trip down memory lane. And, and I thought, boy, I, I remember preaching that and I remember preaching that one. And, you know, that was one I'll never preach again because it was that bad. And I think that one was pretty good. I think I may preach that one again. So actually what I've done is gone back and, and taken three sermons that I've preached uh, in the past and kind of brought them forward and and have uh, done a little upgrading to them and uh, a little reworking of the sermon. Um, so if you know if you take notes and my granny was uh, she did something very interesting in her Bible. She wrote down the preacher's name and the date he preached from a certain passage of scripture. So if if you do that, you might have written down that several years ago I preached from this passage in the month of December. Uh, and so I did, but uh, it won't be exactly the same sermon. It'll be uh, somewhat uh, different, but in many ways it'll, it'll be similar. So let's read this one verse together this morning and then talk about its implications to us uh, uh, that are here and watching online. See, or your translation may say, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So would you agree with me this morning that stress and not sanity is dominating most Americans this year? I mean, Christmas is tough enough, right? Christmas is stressful enough without coronavirus. Uh, But you add coronavirus into the mix, and you add to everything that's going on inside of our country with all the turmoil that seems to, you know, be going on. You know, if if, whatever, ever how you take news, no matter if you're watching whatever channel it might be, just watching the news uh, is stressful enough, right? Remove coronavirus, if we didn't have that going on, just everything that's going on politically in our country is stressful enough. But you, you take everything that's happening in this season, and it is definitely, uh, we are living in a time of more stress than we are sanity. And one of, the th- one of the reasons why Christmas is so stressful and so anxiety-ridden, according to those who researched this, is gift-giving. Prevention Magazine several years ago did a pretty uh, in-depth study on uh, Christmas. And in their article entitled, 11 Things That Americans Dread About Christmas, four of those 11 parts of Christmas that we most dread are directly related to gifts. Of those surveyed, listen, 68% said crowds and standing in long lines cause great anxiety. I, I told you guys, I think it was last week or the week before, I saw three old people almost get into a fist fight 
at uh, Walmart over standing in line. And uh, so uh, just, you know, going to the store and trying to, you know, not only find that gift, but then have to go through the process of purchasing that gift. Or, or maybe some of the anxiety like I've experienced. I, I purchased a gift online and they sent it to me, but they didn't send all the gift to me. And I called them back and said, hey, you didn't send this part of, of what I ordered. And the lady said, oh, I'm, she was so helpful. She was so apologetic. Uh, she said, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to expedite this. And she did. And, and I talked to her Thursday night. Yeah, Thursday night. And yesterday, uh, the gift arrived. The problem was it was not the second half of the gift, but it, she repeated the first half of the gift. So now I've got two of the first half of the gift and still don't have the second half of it. So, uh, you know, maybe long lines are not anxiety-ridden right now. It's just trying to get the right gift delivered uh, to you uh, fills you with anxiety. 37% said getting into debt during Christmas. And and so where does the debt come from? Again, it comes from gifts, right? 28% said just shopping for the gifts in and of itself is an anxiety-ridden experience. And then 19% said that their anxiety during Christmas comes from just the disappointment of the gift they get. (laughs) Uh, Attempting to purchase a gift that is wanted and appreciated for many, if not most, is Christmas' greatest stress, right? A wanted or appreciated gift is defined in this manner. A gift that is used, not returned, or re-gifted. You know, there's even a, a, a commercial that's playing over and over on the radio by a company called Vistaprint. And their commercial says that we are the only place you can shop for a gift that cannot be re-gifted. Why? Because everything is personalized on Vistaprint. Those looking for such a gift feel as though their endeavor rivals trying to find Bigfoot or a unicorn, right? I mean, especially that person that already has everything that's extremely hard to buy for. Now, when you don't know what to buy, what, what's, what do you, temp, what do you uh, tend to default to? Gift cards. <laughs> gift cards were once uh, regarded as the Zoloft of gift giving. Because if you were anxious and didn't know what to get, The easiest way to take care of that stress is to get a gift card. But I would say to you this morning that gift cards have fallen prey to Christmas anxiety. Really for two reasons. Uh, One is volume. One is volume. Used to, gift cards were on a little wire rack that was about one foot wide and one foot tall, right? I mean, you didn't have a lot of options for gift cards. I mean, it's stressful trying to find the little... Uh, uh, envelope to put the gift card in. Which one of those do you buy? Which one would they like? Which one looks the best? I mean, gift cards have gotten really stressful. And now, the volume of gift cards, we've moved from a one, one foot by one foot wire rack to now gigantic four foot by four foot by four foot sections that have literally hundreds of gift cards on them. And some gift cards I've never even heard of before. Some companies I've never heard of before. 
And, and, and so our, our, our default of gift cards uh, is no longer uh, something that is not stressful. It has become very stressful. And then the desire, you know, trying to find the gift card that that person would really use. Now, I'm going to tell you something. In researching this, something blew my mind. Do you know in 2019, they tell us that 3 billion gift cards went unredeemed? Think about that. 3 billion, not were purchased, but went unredeemed. So what does that mean? You remember what I, what I said earlier? It's a, a gift to be desired. So what does that tell me? People are buying a lot of gift cards that either, number one, people are losing or they forgot that they, they got, or what I think is probably more likely, and that is the people didn't want the gift card to begin with. It was undesirable. It was a place that maybe they don't eat or a shop that they don't frequent or a, a particular store that they don't shop in. Our once go-to Christmas gift-giving stress reliever has fallen prey to Christmas anxiety. So let's just be honest this morning, okay? Because some of you may be saying, well, you know, for me, Christmas is really not all about giving gifts. It's really not all about gifts. But let's just, let's just all be honest and really step into the light this morning and admit that Christmas really isn't about family. It's really not about eating. It's really not about being married. It's about gifts. And it's not just about any gift, but the right gift. And not just the right gift, but the perfect gift. And not only the perfect gift, but the perfect amount. Right? Now, I'm going to tell a story that for some of you will make sense, and for the, and for the rest of you, it's not going to make sense. But bear with the illustration nonetheless. Uh, we watch a uh, show that's no longer, it, it, it just went out of uh, uh, prime time. It's now in syndication. You can still uh, catch this show. I think uh, TNT or TBS plays several episodes of it every night. It's a, it's a TV show, show called The Big Bang Theory. And one of the star characters is a guy named Sheldon Cooper. He is a really odd bird if you watch uh, the show. But uh, Sheldon is petrified of gift giving. As a matter of fact, he hates Christmas because of the gift giving. His anxiety is rooted in what he calls reciprocity. Okay, fancy word that means I give you something, then you are, uh, uh, you are now under law to give me something back. That's reciprocity. It's a mutual or even exchange of property. So in a Christmas episode of The Big Bang, Sheldon prepares himself for Penny, and Penny is his across-the-hall neighbor, who is also his roommate, at that time, girlfriend, for her annual Christmas gift. So he gets his roommate, Penny's boyfriend, to take him down to the local mall so that he can purchase a gift for a Penny. But Sheldon is in quite the dilemma because he's not really sure how much penny is going to spend. And Sheldon is all about not giving you a penny less or a penny more, but giving you exactly what you spend on him. He is truly into reciprocity. So what Sheldon does is he comes up with this idea uh, and he, uh, he says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy several different gifts 
at different values, all right? So what he does, he goes into this store that sells gift baskets, and he buys about five or six different gift baskets at varying, diff- at varying prices. That way, when Penny brings his gift, he can give her a gift in equal value to what she has given to him. So he, he tells his uh, roommate, Leonard, who is Penny's boyfriend, here's what I'm going to do. When Penny comes over and she brings me my gift and I open it up, he says, I am going to all of a sudden have this bout of gastro distress, which will allow me to go to the bathroom and perform a quick internet search on my phone as to how much Penny's gift is worth. Then what I'll do is I'll be able to pick from the gifts that I have bought which gift best fits her gift. So Sheldon's got it all mapped out. Penny shows up. Sheldon is confident that his strategy is uh, foolproof until he opens Penny's gift. And when he opens it up, he looks inside, and there is a napkin. Uh, By the way, Penny works at the Cheesecake Factory. There's a napkin from the Cheesecake Factory. And Sheldon's puzzled, and he's like, a napkin? And Penny says, Sheldon, open it up and look on the inside. So Sheldon opens it up and looks on the inside, and all of a sudden this look of bewilderment comes over his face. He opens it up to find the signature of his childhood hero, Leonard Nimoy. Spock. He is a Star Trek fan. Sheldon doesn't know how to, he doesn't know how to react. He darts out of the room, into his bedroom. He grabs up all of the gift baskets that he buys. He walks back in with the gift baskets up to his chin and his arms stretched as wide as he could. And Penny's like, Sheldon, what did you do? And he just drops them all and he says, I know it's not enough. It's not enough. You see, Sheldon realizes that he doesn't have enough reciprocity to meet Penny's gift. Well, I go through that whole long illustration uh, to say this. We can all relate in some degree to Sheldon's plight. And no matter how hard we try, Christmas at its core is about giving. We could deny the importance of gift giving. We can abstain from gift giving as a way of protesting the commercialization of Christmas. However, our protest and abstention will not change the truth this morning, and that truth is 2,000 years old, that Christmas at its heart is about giving. Scripture teaches us that Christmas is all about the gift and not just any gift, right? The perfect gift. You will not find such a gift under a beautifully decorated tree, but in a well-worn and used feed trough. The gift, it's not going to be wrapped in ornate packaging with a hand-tied ribbon, but in swaddling clothes wrapped by the hands of a virgin mother. The gift we will open this morning is perfect because it is given to us by one who knows the deepest desires of our heart. This gift is perfect because it doesn't demand reciprocity only to be received. I want you to think about that this morning. 
The gift in the manger is a gift that is perfect, and yet it does not demand reciprocity. It only demands to be received. Why? Because like Sheldon, what could you give in return for the gift that you're being asked to receive? Anybody want to try to, to practice reciprocity with the God of the universe? As a matter of fact, any attempt to repay the giver of this gift proves that the receiver does not understand its magnitude. The gift, which is a gift of love, it's, it's foreign. It's otherworldly. It's non-human. You see, previous to this love incarnating it, itself, there existed only tainted versions of its existence. Stories of old portrayed short vignettes of what was promised, but no story possessed the perpetual virtue. The first Christmas morning, a gift was available to any who, received, who would receive it. Love, listen, love wrapped itself in flesh and manifest itself among the religious and the reprobates. God incarnated himself so that man might possess a, listen, a visible definition of a word that had not yet been created. You see, when Jesus came into the world and love came into the world, true love, the Greeks had no word for that kind of love. The word agape did not exist until Christ came into the world. Love no, no longer spoke itself from bushes that were on fire but not consumed, winds or clouds or still small voices or even prophets. The word became flesh so that men could see, they could touch, they could feel, and they could know this word love. This gift was given, here's, here's the whole point of the sermon this morning. This gift of love, which 1 John uh, 3, 1 talks about, was given to us. I want to introduce to you a phrase that I did several years ago out of this sermon. And that is, it was given to style us into children of God. What do I mean by style us into children of God? That, that is... It, it, it has a, a picture, just like each of us have our style, right? Some of us, uh, you know, have a particular type of dress uh, that we like to, uh, uh, to dress in. And that's what God is doing through this gift of love. It, it is given to us because God wants to style us into something. That is to style us into the children of God. You see, from our Heavenly Father's heart flows a constant stream of giving. Get, listen, giving is not what God does, it's who God is. God does not love. He is love. Do, do you understand that? Like, sometimes we say, that, you know, that uh, talking about God's love as, as though it is something He does not something He is. You see, there's never not anything that God does that's not love. That's why we say that God doesn't love, but that God is love. He knows nothing else to be other than love. 
You see, Christmas was planned before creation to give us an inexpressible gift of love when we were our naughtiest. Furthermore, there is no requirement of good behavior or great works in order to receive it. God is not like Santa Chuck. He's not checking his list to see if you've been naughty or nice to whether you're going to get a gift. We don't have to put money in a Christmas fund in order to purchase it. Any of y'all used to do that? Had a little fun that you write whole money away in all year long to buy Christmas? Why? Because it's free. But free, listen, does not mean cheap. It costs the giver of this gift his life, and it requires the same of those who receive it. The giver paid for this gift by giving his life, and it must be received by the receiver giving up their life. It's the great exchange. You trade your infinite debt for God's infinite wealth. That sounds like a pretty good gift exchange to me, right? God, here's my gift, all my sin. And God said, here's my gift, all my righteousness. All my perfection. Anybody up for that kind of trade? That's the best gift exchange ever. You cannot behold this gift of love without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Because without the aid of the Holy Spirit, you and I can never see God's love for what it really is. You can see a babe lying in a manger, but not believe that he is the sacrifice or the propitiation for your sins. You can repeat the sounding joy without joy resounding in your heart because of this great gift. You can behold the face of God in Christ and feel nothing but sentimentality. You can stare at at this perfect gift and with great ease, and this is what happens, miss its surpassing worth. However, when with spiritual eyes you see this love, Guess what will happen? It will grab hold of your soul. When this lavish love is experienced, lovers of self, guess what? (laughs) Become lovers of God. As Bell's love for the beast transformed him, even, even more so will this love style us into the children of God. Today's John's, today, our text in 1 John commands us with deep emotion, to see or to behold this love. Why does God have to command us to do this? Because we are easily distracted. Every person in this room has spiritual ADD. But furthermore, we are commanded to behold or to see this because as I've told us for many, many years, we we become what we behold. We are called to behold or to see God's love. Here's what's interesting about John. In the book of John, which is the fourth gospel, John, who wrote 1 John, wrote John. There's 21 chapters in the gospel of John, and John uses the word love 38 times in 21 chapters. That's more than than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, either one. But then when we get to this first epistle of John... 
John only writes five chapters, but in five chapters, guess what he does? He uses the word love 44 times in five chapters. You see, love is the theme of John's writings, but it was not always the theme of, of his life. Do y'all remember who John really is? He had a brother, right? James. And they had a nickname, right? Anybody remember the nickname? The Sons of Thunder. That would make a great t-shirt, right? The Sons of Thunder. It'd make a great reality TV show. Sons of Thunder. Why, how did they get the nickname Sons of Thunder? Well, they were a little bit on the hot-headed side. Their, their temper had not been sanctified yet. It had not been redirected in the right way. And one time, over in Luke 9.54, they had an encounter with some people who rejected Jesus, and it sent James and John off the deep end. And so James and John came to Jesus, and they said, and I'm going to quote them, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Doesn't sound like a man of love, does it to you? But you know what? This was recorded prior to the cross. And something dramatically happens in the life of John. John, John is transformed in a very dramatic way. From this hot-headed, capricious disciple into a man who wrote the following words. L just listen to these words out of 1 John 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that, watch, we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. This, you know what he's saying? This is how we know we have become a Christian because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer, watch, has eternal life abiding in him. Do you remember what Jesus said murder was? Having hate in your heart towards another person. That's murder. By this we know love, that, we lay, that he laid down his life for us. So how do we know what love is? We've seen it in the death of Christ. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So what is John saying there? John is saying, we saw love at the cross, and now what do we do? Because we've seen it and experienced, this is the way we live. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what I said earlier in this sermon. God has spoke of his love in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God goes from a God of word to a God who comes in flesh and makes that word visible. Walking with Christ, no doubt, transformed John. Watching Christ's love in action transformed him into a lover of people. But listen, I believe that nothing changed John more than the cross. Out of, out of 12 disciples, 
Ten fled, one died, and one went to the cross. Who, who was it? John. He was the only one standing there. And in John 16, John says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. You see, when John says um, that we need to see or behold what manner of love is this, I believe that the, the cross of Christ had emblazoned itself into the mind of John. I think that in, in the most positive way possible, John's, John's brain had been traumatized by the cross in a positive way. John's life was never the same after that. John finishes verse 16 by saying the result of this knowledge causes us to lay down our lives for the brother in 1 John 3, 16. That's what it causes us to do. And listen, something that we're going to do as a church beginning in 2021, we're finishing up our final days in the Psalms. I hope you've enjoyed that. Is there, everybody had a great time reading Tim Keller's little book on the Psalms? And can you believe that if you will get to the 31st of December, you will have read every verse in the book of Psalm, and you will have done a Bible study on every verse in 150 chapters, the longest book of the Bible, in one year. So where, where do we go from there? It's, it's hard to top. But in preparing for this sermon, there's a book. It's right at the back of the, the church this morning. It's free. Pick up a copy. I take it with you. It's called Living the Cross-Centered Life. It's a little different. Don't start reading it yet. It's not day by day, so you're going to get some instructions in the days ahead on how to read it and how we're going to go through it. It's not going to be a year long, but we are going to spend 13 weeks, which is the time from January the 1st till Easter. And we'll finish this book because what we're going to do is we're going to take what we're talking about this morning how do we do what John did, and that is begin to live the cross-centered life? How do we live day in and day out of our life like John did in the sense that we could never, ever shake what happened at the cross? Let me tell you a quick story this morning about John. It's not found in your Bible, so I have to go on historical evidence, but we have fairly high confidence that the story I'm about to tell you actually happened. And it's recorded by one of the early church historians named Eusebius. And Eusebius uh, wrote in the, the first century A.D. Uh, concerning the events going on in the church. And so he writes about the story about John uh, that goes this way. According to Eusebius, John as an old man had won a young man to Christ and was discipling him. And he was about to go on a trip and he said to the local, to the bishop of the town that he was in, uh, please take care of this young man, and when I get back, I will once again take up discipling him. All I need you, excuse me, all I need you to do is to take care of him till I get back. Sounds like an easy job, right? Then when John, uh, then John went on his trip, he came back sometime later, found the bishop and said to the bishop, where's the young man I left in your care? The bishop said, uh, Alas, he is dead. John says, what do you mean he's dead? The bishop said, well, he's dead to God. In other words, he had fallen back 
in with old friends and had gone back into a life of crime. And now he lived as a leader of a band of robbers up in the mountains where no one uh, could go. Because if anybody would try to get near the hideout, they were killed. So again, according to Eusebius, John says, get me a horse. So, his, so this old man gets on a horse, rides up in the mountain where it's death to go. When he gets up there, of course, the robbers who keep watch come out and they grab him. And he says, that's okay. I wanted to be captured. Take me to your leaders. Take me before your judgment seat. So they bring this old man to the leaders. Uh, and one of the leaders, of course, is this young man who immediately recognizes him. And this is what Eusebius says. The young man, though armed, began to run away. He took off. And the old man John took off after him, screaming these words, Why flee from me? I'm an old, unarmed man. Don't you see there's still hope of life for you? Eusebius records that John went on to say, I'll gladly suffer death for you as the Lord suffered death for us. I'll give my own life in exchange for yours. Just stop, listen, and trust me. Eusebius says, hearing these words, the, the, man, the young man stopped. He hurled away his weapons and trembling began to weep bitterly. And he came back. What does John want us to see? He wants us to see what kind of love the Father has given to us. What's interesting is that this phrase, what kind of, is one word in Greek, though it is three words in English. We have a hard time translating it because it is what we would call an idiom. Do you, do you, does everybody know what an idiom is? Have you ever heard phrases like, it's raining cats and dogs? That's an idiom, okay? Um, so when you have an idiom in one language, it becomes very hard to translate into another language, right? Imagine going to China and trying to use the phrase, when it's raining outside, in Chinese, it's raining cats and dogs. It's not going to, it's, it's not going to make sense. So this word in Greek, if we were to literally translate it into English, it would read this way, from what country? See from what country? You see, it's meant to express the idea that this love is not from here. As I said earlier, it's foreign, it's otherworldly. This word is fitting in the context because it, it gives us depth to a word that has fallen into shallow waters. You see, John is bursting with emotion. He's an old man who has never deleted Calvary from his mind. Christ on the cross had infected him like a virus. It had taken control of him. It had compelled him to, uh, into a life that resembled the life of his Savior. He was under its influence. This love, which John has not ceased from beholding, had now besieged every part of his being. Staring at, ca uh, staring at, the cal at Calvary had left him with no other recourse than to live a life that was being styled by this inexpressible gift of God's love. 
This agape love had never been seen before. It had never been experienced before. The Greeks had a lot of words for love, but they did not have a word for this unconditional love, this preferential love that is chosen and acted out by the will. It is not a love based on the goodness of the one being loved or upon natural affinity or emotion. Rather, this benevolent love, uh, it's a benevolent love that always seeks the good of the beloved. This word was created to define an action that was foreign to an entire world. It wasn't until, until Christ's advent that this type of love had ever been beheld. This is why some translations say, what manner or how great. You see, God's, God loves His children with a love that is impossible to articulate in any human language and that it is utterly foreign to our normal human understanding and experience. Our love for each other is framed with a language that we use to describe the feeling we have for pizza, pets, places, and the list goes on. This love is so out of this world that Paul has to give us a new word. Not only does Paul have to give us a new word, but listen, Paul has to pray for us. Look at these words this morning. We're coming to the end. Listen to these words. This is how magnanimous this love is. Watch the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant, watch, look what He's praying for, that He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. May have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the goodness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all the ages Forever and ever, amen. That's how great this love is. This love is such a quality that we must pray for divine assistance in understanding and applying it. Never forget this truth. When something foreign enters your body, such as a disease, an effect takes place, right? The word given speaks of love's quality and its quantity. Now, that's difficult for us to understand for this reason. is because we, we either have to choose, right? We either choose, do we want quality or do we want something in quantity? Why? Because we assume that if it's quality, there cannot be a lot of it. And if there is quantity, there cannot be any quality in it. Yet the Bible uses this word given to let you and I both know that when it comes to God's love, there is enough quantity and quality at the same time. God's love is not scarce, and, it's, and God's love is not, is not lacking. He wants us to look hard, and John wants us to look hard at that which we have never seen because it possesses a perfect quality and a perpetual quantity. So here's my last couple of just notes for you this morning. John wants us to behold the quality and the quantity of this love for our transformation and our transference. 
What do I mean by that? It's a lot of words, big words, transformation, transference, quality, quantity. You see, it's the quality of his love that we need to that we need to see. What's the quality of it? It's perfect. His love is perfect. Romans 5, 7 through 10 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Did you, under, did, did you get what he just said? He says, therefore, we have been justified. That means been made right with God by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him. Who? By God. From whom? God. Do you get that? Do you get the magnitude of that? Yes, God saved you. But what did he save you from? himself. Why? Because what makes hell hell? It's God's eternal wrath poured out on sinners for all of eternity. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? His love is not based on a person's quality. His lo he loves in spite of a person's quality. This is a statement. I think it's going to come up uh, on the next slide. Remember, Jesus does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. Hmm? That'll preach, won't it? <laughs> Jesus doesn't accept me just as I am. Because listen, if Jesus is accepting you, He's not accepting you for who you are. He's accepting you to make you into something that you ain't. You see, He loves me despite how I am. And that's our problem. We think that God looks down on us and He loves us just as we are, and He doesn't. He loves us despite how we are because He's intending into making us something much different. He's got a different style for us. Jesus demonstrates this throughout his ministry. He calls Matthew a tax collector. No one of a lesser quality than Matthew. This calling of Matthew was not a one-time act because later on in Luke 19, he goes after another tax collector named who? Zacchaeus. And in Matthew 9:11, the Bible says, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus does not love us based on our quality, but on His quality. He's not checking His list to see who has been naughty or nice. He, his love is based on His own untainted volitional choice. Listen, when God loved you, He loved you because He chose to love you. There was nothing in you that was lovable. He's loving you because He is love. Anybody in here feel the pressure off? How many of you often feel pressure to be loved by people based on your performance? How many of you people have quit loving you because you didn't perform up to their standard? 
And you know what God says? I didn't love you because of what you've done. I love you because I have chosen to love you. Why did he pick Israel to be his people? Because they were the best, the biggest? No. Simply because he chose them. Nothing about you can make God love you, uh, love you and nothing you can do uh, can make him... Let me say that again. Nothing about you can make God not love you and nothing you can do can make him love you. He is perfect. It cannot be persuaded, manipulated, purchased because it's pure and pristine and it's perfect. People are amazed at the quality of a person who lays down their life for another. We make movies about such people. And yet, no one has loved like God has loved. Only Christ's love can compel people like John and others to such action. Lastly, he not only exhibits this love towards believers, but he imparts this love towards believers. This is the transference. This Divine love is infused into followers so that uh, uh, it becomes the divine source of life in us. Uh, this becomes what, what moves us, what motivates us, what, 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 uh, what makes us active and alive as Christians is the love of God. And this love begins to transfer itself onto other people into the other parts of this world. Give me just a second here. I, I, I had a chance to talk to uh, a co-worker of mine this week about um, Christianity, about what it really means to be a Christian. And this guy is a, is a, he's a he, I mean, not only is he a co-worker, but he, he really is a dear friend of mine, a guy that I, I just love with all my heart and desperately want to see him come to faith in Christ. And as we were having this discussion about uh, faith, one of his greatest hang-ups about faith is that he doesn't see the transference of faith in, people's in, in people that claim to be Christians. He, he sees it every now and then in random Christians, but he says, you know, when I go to church, I don't see it at large in the church. And I, told, I shared with him how Billy Graham believes that about 80% of people that are on church rolls are, are going to end up in hell, that they're not, they're not true followers of Christ. They may believe, but they're not followers. And, and I was explaining to him how when, when one truly experiences salvation, that that does not make them perfect, but what it does, it makes the vast majority of their life, it bends their life into a way of living that is different than the way they live prior to their salvation. And I told him, I said, you know what, if 80% of Christian, I mean, if 80% of the people in church were genuinely saved, I said, you know what would happen? Our world would be a radically different place. Amen? If all the people that claim to be Christians are really Christians, then why are we in such the shape that we are in? The answer is because they're not real Christians. They haven't genuinely experienced the love of God. Why? Because when you experience the love of God, you are infused with the love of God. And what begins to happen is, is that if you don't transfer that love to other people, well, listen, 
it, it, let, let, me, let me rephrase that. If you've truly been infused with the love of God, you have no other recourse. There's nothing that you can do but transfer it. It's not like you can even bottle it up and keep it all inside. It is so great. It is so massive. It is so magnanimous that you have to let it out. You cannot withhold it. That's what John is teaching us. That's what Christmas is teaching us. That it transforms us, it styles us into the children of God. And that as children of God, it begins to transfer from our life into the lives of other people because we have been infected with it. It has been infused into our life. But here's what I want to leave us with this morning. Just a great thought. That word given is in the perfect tense, which means that it's perpetual. It never ends. What He has given us will never run out. It doesn't possess an expiration date. It will not fade or corrode. It doesn't, doesn't diminish in value. It cannot be stolen. It is so permanent that nothing can part us from its grip. This love is not fueled by uh, uh, reciprocity, as I stated earlier. It's based on His volition, not our virtue. This love is demonstrated in the Old Testament story of Hosea, where though Hosea's wife does not reciprocate with love, the, the prophet is told over and over again to keep loving, to keep loving, to keep loving. And though you and I do not reciprocate, though you and I do not often express our love t- towards God, God never relinquishes showing His love towards us, His people. And does anybody in here know how you show love to God? Do you know the way you express love to God? Not by telling Him you love Him. He says, in what? In the book of John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we're not, we're not keeping His commandments to give something back to Him. We are keeping His commandments because of what He has given to us. Are you saved this morning? If you are, guess what? You are a child of God. And don't ever think for one second that He's going to stop loving you because He's invested His entire life into bringing you into His family. Why in the world would He give His life only to kick you out? You are loved. If you are His, you are loved. And He will never discard you. He's never going to put you up for adoption. The spiritual DHR is not ever going to show, show up and remove you from His home because He's chosen not to love you anymore. 
You are forever secure. And that thought alone should be enough to light a fire inside of you to go out and to live in this world as a great lover of people. Because you are being greatly loved by a great God. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. So Christian, listen. Online and in here, what do we need to do with this? Well, number one, we need to repeat this message to our hearts every single day of our lives. You know what we need to do? We need to get to exactly what the the title of this little book we're going to look at says, and that is get to living the cross-centered life. We need to live an Easter experience every day of our life. Why? So that that other people can experience what Easter is like. We need to live like we have been lavishly loved by the creator of the universe. That we have experienced this this out-of-this-world love that is so great that a word had to be invented to try to convey what it was like, and yet it still falls short. And so now we have a person that we can point to as to what love's really like. And we need to live out of the abundance of that love. That ought to bring us out of any kind of spiritual quagmire we might be in this morning. And then listen, uh, David, come on, and let's, let's, let's get ready to sing this last song. Listen, maybe, maybe in this room or maybe watching online, You may believe the Christmas story, but that does not make you a Christian. Belief is always followed by behavior. You may know about Christ. You may think that that story is true. But but listen, if your life is not different from the day you believe that till now... Then you, don't, then you don't believe the story. As a matter of fact, if you're pretty much the same person that you were supposedly the day you got saved as you are today, let me, let me tell you something. More than likely, you don't fully believe the story. You haven't had what we call the experience of the new birth, of salvation. You're not a Christian. That's not me being, being mean. That's me being honest with you. You cannot encounter Christ without Christ changing you and I just gave you a few verses and I could supply you with so many more that says look this is how you know that you're a Christian this is how you know you've experienced God's love and so this morning if you don't know Christ if you've never experienced his love it's it's easy It's something that you receive by faith. But listen, as I said earlier, it's going to require everything, right? It's going to require you to give up your life and to take on Christ's life. It's going to require you to lay down your will and to to submit to His will. That's what it's going to require. Yes, it's free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. 
But it's not cheap. But remember what I said at the beginning, and I'll, I'll close with this at the end. What do, you, what do you bring to Christ this morning? Your sin. All your sin. And you just lay it at His feet. And what does Christ extend to you in return? All of His righteousness, His perfection, His love, His salvation, everything that you don't deserve, everything that I don't deserve. And He says, you take this, and I'll take this. There's no reciprocity there. Let's pray. Father, in these next moments ahead, I know that there are both believers and non-believers listening, watching. And today, many of us who claim your name find ourselves in a spiritual rut, a spiritual quagmire. Our hearts are not burning with inside of us like we want it to or like it once did before. And yet it's so easy to rekindle that flame because all we have to do is come back and obey John's teaching. See what manner of love the Father has given to us that we are called the children of God. And then, Father, for those who have simply dabbled with Christianity, those who claim to, to, to know you, but yet, but yet nothing in their life speaks of obedience. Nothing in their life speaks of change. There's a profession that, yes, I'm going to heaven when I die, but, 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 there's, no, but there's no possession, there's no visible possession of heaven in their life right now. And so, Father, I just pray that people who are holding on to an empty confession would let loose of that and embrace and see with the help of the Holy Spirit what, what you have done for them. And they would bring their sin to you and exchange it for the great exchange and truly experience your love. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing one more song this morning together.